This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Good morning Anchor, how are we? Good. We are continuing our series called Burn Your White Flags and you might think, what? That is a really random name to give a sermon series and the reason we've called it that is because to burn your white flag means it's a really aggressive way of saying no surrender, no turning back, I'm not going back, I'm not giving up on Jesus. In fact, to burn your white flag means to remove even the possibility of waving the flag in surrender. And the reason that we want to do that is because as we look at the church, what we see is people walking away from the church in droves. In fact, we are seeing the emergence of a group of ex-Christians, perhaps they, they call themselves ex-evangelicals or the deconstructors, who are wrestling with deconstructing their faith and not finding the answers to it. And I want to assure you the answers are there. They exist. You've got to do the hard work of finding out those answers. But then who give up on their faith and drift off into either some form of liberal version of faith or you know, a form of agnosticism or atheism. And so I believe that this series is vitally crucial for us. And it might feel at times that, um, that Hebrews delivers a bit of a hard word for us. And uh, that is true this morning, but I believe a necessary word for us to hear. So please keep your Bibles or your apps open at Hebrews chapter 2. And I'm going to pray for us as we dive into God's word this morning because we believe that God speaks. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you speak. Jesus, we thank you that you are your Father's best message to this world, fully completely revealing the nature and the character of our God. And so God, we want to lean in this morning. We want to listen to what you would have to say to us. Give us soft hearts. Father, I believe that you have something profound and personal to say to every single person in this room today. God, I ask that you would rescue us from a cruise control version of Christianity that is apathetic and passive and begin to stir in this church a real hunger for you, not just for the blessings that you give, but an intimacy with you. Strengthen us, we pray. Help us to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We pray that you would speak by your spirit, transform us by his power. And we ask this in Jesus' strong name. And God's people said... Amen. A few weeks ago, I went fishing with one of my best mates, Jono, and um, we, uh, we got there and we realized the boat wouldn't start because it had no petrol in it. So we had to go and get some petrol, drive back out to the nearest servo, come back. By the time we actually launched the boat and got into the water, it was pitch black. And we decided what we would do was just putt up to the, uh, the spit bridge and throw our lines in and then just drift back down the river and see if we could catch any monster fish that happened to be swimming swimming by. And so we, we, we rode up to the road. I didn't even know what you call it in a boat. I'm not much of a boat or a fishing, fishing person. A fishing person? Man, I don't even know what the term, I don't even know what it's called when you put the hook on the line. Is that called rigging, rigging up or something? Where's Aiden? Is he here? What's it even called? I don't even know. But anyway, we're sitting there. Everyone's got these little head torches on, putting their, their hooks and their sinkers on their line. And we're drifting down the river and we look up and we notice that we are literally meters 
from crashing into one of those nice big yachts that sit just off the bottom of Cremorne there, you know, like these amazingly multi-million dollar lot. And we all kind of freak out in that moment and realize that we should probably turn the motor on and start to steer the boat instead of just let it drift down the river. In fact, I learned on that fishing trip that a, a vessel that is drifting is considered underway, which means it's considered to be a moving boat. doesn't matter if the engine's off or the sail's down. The fact that it's drifting means that the captain of the boat or whatever the person is, they are responsible for steering the boat and making sure it doesn't crash or hit other objects. Can I get an amen from Tom Stewart somewhere in the room? Is that, uh, am I right? I, I don't even know what I'm talking about. I should probably just get back to the Bible and stop talking about boating. But here we are drifting down the river, oblivious to the dangers that lie so close to us as we're about to crash into a yacht and perhaps, you know, our little dinghy just sinks and I'm, I wasn't really prepared to swim that far. It was cold. I had a big hoodie on and a jacket on and, and a beanie. And, and as, as I was reflecting on that moment, it kind of got me thinking of the dangers of drifting in the Christian life. And that is exactly what the, the preacher here in Hebrews chapter 2 warns us of, of the danger of drifting in our faith. And he warns us to pay attention, to not drift. We need to remember that this, this book of Hebrews is a sermon that was preached or written in you know, the form that we have, and then delivered by someone else. But it was communicated as a sermon to a bunch of believers who had converted to following Jesus from a Jewish background. And so their worldview, what they grew up with, what they were schooled in was first century Judaism. And they are being tempted and pressured and persecuted even at times to default back to their form of faith and to let go of their Savior Jesus. And so what the preacher will do here in Hebrews chapter 2 is to begin to contrast, like we looked at last week, compare and contrast the angels and their role in mediating the Torah, the law, and Jesus and his role in delivering the good news, the gospel. Now, as we hope read that, or perhaps you may have read chapter 1 and chapter 2 this week as you prepared for the message this morning, you, you might have noticed how much the preacher spends his time talking about angels. You think, what's the go with angels? I mean, when we think of angels, we don't think much past a statue in a Catholic church or Cupid on a Valentine's card. You know, I mean, that's our sum total of our thinking about angels. And yet, it's all about angels here. What is the deal with angels? Well, at least for the people of God, historically, angels had been a big deal. You see, angels were heavenly beings who ministered in the very presence of God. And then God sent them to reveal His will, to reveal His word, to guide His people in all sorts of ways. In fact, angels assisted Israel in battle. Angels were there in that moment and intervened as Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac. Angels guided God's people. Almost every big moment in the story of God's people, angels are there playing some important role. In fact, so significant were angels in the first century that Paul even writes to the church in the city of Colossae, the, the book to you know, the Colossians, he writes warning them of a group of people who insisted on angel worship. 
and said, there are people who so venerated angels and the significant part that they played in delivering God's law and his will that they would worship these heavenly beings. We, we know that to be true. There are multiple times where angels turn up and they say, don't worship me. I'm not God. I'm simply a messenger. And as we read Hebrews here, chances are their problem is not that they are tempted to worship angels, but they see the significance of the message that the angels mediated. That is that they brought the law of God. In fact, according to Jewish tradition from Deuteronomy 33, they believe that angels in fact mediated the Ten Commandments to Moses. As he stood on Mount Sinai, angels were there delivering the Ten Commandments to Moses as he chiseled them onto stone tablets and delivered them to God's people. And so it's not so much a reverence or over-reverence or worship of angels, but of the significant role they played in delivering God's law, his message to his people. And so Hebrews will contrast angels and their role and Jesus and his role in delivering the gospel. Last week, we stopped at chapter 1, verse 3. And what the preacher will do from chapter 1, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 1, is he's just going to throw out a whole bunch of Old Testament references. Remember, this is his sermon, and his text is the Old Testament. So he will throw an Old Testament verse out there, and he'll preach on that verse. He'll unpack the verse. And what he will do is give us five reasons there in chapter 1 why Jesus is superior to angels. We don't have time to unpack it all verse by verse, but let me give you the, the 30,000 view, foot view of what he's trying to do there. He's trying to say Jesus is superior. Verse 4 and 5 of chapter 1. Jesus is superior because Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Father's Son. Angels are simply messengers and servants. Or chapter 1, verse 6, Jesus is worshipped. by angels themselves will worship Jesus. He has to be superior. Or verse 7 and 9, 7 to 9, Jesus is eternal. Angels are winds and fires. That is that they're temporary. Jesus is eternal. He lasts forever. No beginning, no end. Or verse 13, as we saw last week, Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand, the place of honor, the place where he rules and reigns over all of creation. And the angels are gathered around the throne in worship. And finally, he will say, angels, in fact, are sent to serve those who stand as inheritors of the promise of Abraham. They serve you. And so Jesus is superior to the angels. As important as they were, as significant as they were in delivering the law, the Torah to God's people, Jesus is superior. He is a superior messenger and he has a better message. You know, there's um, multiple times. You know, you know what preachers always tell stories about their kids? I was thinking about this last night. It's because there's a really neat correlation between God the Father and his people. I'm like, this just works on so many levels. So that's why you get so many stories about my kids. But I was thinking about how my kids operate. Um, often I will ask the kids to go and tell their sibling a message. And they will deliver the message, but it's only the part of the message that's convenient for them. Like I will tell Judah to go and tell Piper 
tell Piper that she has five more minutes with that toy, and then when the five minutes is up, she has to give you the toy. And he will walk into the room and say, Daddy says you have to give me the toy. I'm like, that is not the, well, it is the message I said. It's just not the full message, right? And so as, as the preacher here contrasts and compares angels and Jesus, he's saying that the message that they deliver, the Torah, is it's partial, it's incomplete, but Jesus will bring the full, final, complete revelation of God to his people. He's unpacking what he, he opened up with in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. This is the complete message. Jesus is superior. But as he begins to work his sermon and quote some Old Testament verses, he begins to anticipate a problem with his message. And the problem is the humanity of Jesus. You see, we know that Jesus became human. He assumed upon himself flesh. Philippians 2, he gave up what was his, his by rights, equality with the Father, and took upon himself the nature of humanity. Now, does that cause a problem for Jesus? For, if we're going to worship him, like, doesn't that mean that he is not a heavenly being like the angels, but lower than them? And so he is trying to anticipate and solve this problem that is created by the humanity of Jesus. And we would call that the wonder of the doctrine of the incarnation that God would put on flesh. This is what he says, chapter 2, verse 5. For it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere. I love it how he just quotes the Old Testament. Somewhere it says this. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. What we notice here is as the preacher quotes Psalm 8, Psalm 8, as it was originally intended to be read, spoke of the dignity of humanity. What, why would God be mindful of us? Like, why would God bestow dignity on humanity, crowning us above creation? If you remember back to Genesis 1, God created Adam and Eve in his likeness, and he said to them, rule the earth and subdue it. He made us his underleaders, right? We were to rule creation as stewards of creation, on behalf of God, and yet in Genesis 3, because of the result of our rejection of God and our sin, that rule becomes fractured and distorted and messed up. And so we don't simply see God's intended purpose for humanity and for this world. There's a distortion that occurs. And as the preacher begins to roll out Psalm 8, Initially, it makes sense at the level of this. This is the way God intended humanity to be. An idealized view of humanity. Psalm 8 leaves us wanting. Where is the one who would come, who would actually live like this? And the author of Hebrews in his brilliance says it's Jesus he is the ultimate human. He is the second Adam. He is the one who lived the way that God intended 
to be lived. And in fact, he was made for a little while lower than the angels. That is, he clothed himself with flesh. He died on the cross. And then he is crowned with glory and honor by his resurrection and ascension. And he is seated at the Father's right hand with that promise we saw last week that God would place everything under his feet, that he would rule and reign. And so he's saying the perfect ultimate human is Jesus. He is the one. Now, any good preacher will begin to anticipate the objections of his hearers. Like sometimes I will, I will, I will preach something and, then in, and I'll know if I say this, they're going to be like, yeah, well, but what about that? And this preacher does the exact same thing. As he, as he says, we see everything in subjection under Jesus' feet, the, the thought for his hearers is, well, well actually, I'm not sure I really see that right now. In fact, what I see is my business is struggling because I've decided to follow Jesus and now no longer, no one wants to trade with me anymore. In fact, what I see is my family rejecting me for this new belief that I have in Jesus. In fact, what I see every time I walk past the synagogue or the temple is people who I used to worship with now looking upon me with scorn. In fact, what I experience is pressure and suffering and persecution. I'm not sure I really see Jesus ruling all things. And so he says to them, we need to see with the eyes of faith. What do we see? In fact, we see Jesus. This truth is what is called the now but not yet tension of the promises of God. Right? That God promises that all things are subject to Jesus. And there is truth to that. But the final consummation of that promise is not realized until Jesus comes back. We live in what the author calls the last days, the time between Christ's ascension and his return, where he will finally rule and reign with this tension of these promises being real but not fully realized yet. And in this moment, in this experience of the Christian faith, the author will say, fix your eyes on Jesus. We see Jesus with faith, ruling and reigning. Jesus became a human. Yes. But it doesn't create a problem for our worship. In fact, what he says there is that the fact that Jesus becomes human means that he is taking with him many sons and daughters to glory. In fact, what that means is that Jesus is willing to identify with us. He's not ashamed to call you brother or sister. As messy as your life is, as broken as you are, as twisted as your motivations become, Jesus is not ashamed to call you family. You know, a number of years ago, I went on a youth camp. And before I went on the youth camp, my mom said to me, oh, Mike's mum will pick you up from the station afterwards. We would all catch the train back and parents would be there. And uh, I, was, I was kind of really happy with that because I was a bit, you know that weird, awkward teenage stage where you're kind of embarrassed of your parents? I was like, sweet, Mike's mum will be there. My mum won't be there. I won't have to be embarrassed about my mum picking me up and cuddling me and kissing me after a week, a week, uh, a week away on youth camp. And anyway, I remember we arrived at Hornsby Station. I jumped off the train and there was mum and I was so disappointed and it crushed her. I'm pretty sure she's still scarred to this day. But that sense of embarrassment of your family, when we, I don't know, when does that start and end? I'm not ready for my kids to start feeling that. 
Jesus is not embarrassed by you. He could be. We're a mess. And yet, he is willing to call us sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. This is the wonder of the message that Jesus brings, and it's called the gospel, the good news. The fact that Jesus would clothe himself with flesh and take on human weakness and die on the cross and then be buried in the tomb for three days and then rise again to new life, ascend to the Father's right hand, where he would mediate on our behalf as our high priest. That is an infinitely better message than the message that the angels mediated the message of the law. A message of a God who has made a way for us to enter into his presence. This truly is a great salvation. And so, in light of the fact that Jesus, God's best message to the world, has come and delivered us this good news, the author issues a warning. Have a look at what he says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, in light of the fact that Jesus is superior to angels, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The salvation was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. The preacher in Hebrews will issue about five warnings throughout his letter. And the warnings progressively ramp up as the book goes on. But I think the question we all wrestle with as we come to these warning passages is, how do we, what do we do with them? Like, how do, I, how do I reconcile a warning passage like this with all of the wonderful promises that God has given about assurance of faith? Like, how do I reconcile with that with Ephesians 1, where God says that He has given us His Holy Spirit, the seal guaranteeing our inheritance? How do we reconcile that with something like um, 1 Peter chapter 1, where He says, you have, You've been given an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you that can never perish, spoil, or fade? Like, how do we make sense of this? Well, there is a lot that has been said on this, and perhaps we can provide some more resources for you guys. But effectively, there are three main ways that we can interpret these warning passages. The first way is to say that there is a real, genuine possibility that someone could lose their faith. That there is a real, genuine possibility that someone can drift away from God and lose their faith altogether. That's one possibility. The second suggestion that people say is that it's not so much about losing your salvation, it's actually about losing the rewards of your salvation when you get to heaven. And there's actually not many people that kind of hold that position, I don't think. Or the final way is to say, no, no, those promises that Jesus made, those promises that we read, they are true. They are absolutely true. And the warning passages that we read in Scripture are God's means by which He will develop perseverance in us. 
God is going to use these warnings as his way of saying, don't drift, don't fall away, don't turn back, don't wave your white flag in surrender. Hang in there. Now that doesn't mean that we won't experience a season of doubt or a season walking in the wilderness. That doesn't mean we won't have to wrestle with really difficult questions or experience suffering and cry out to God, why? Those promises don't discount any of that. But what it does mean is that for those who do walk through the wilderness, they'll eventually come out the other side. That God will use these warnings as His means, His way of achieving our perseverance. It means that those promises that Jesus made in John 10... I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. That's true. Or Romans 8, where Paul says that for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified. And then in a weird way, he says, and those he justified, he also glorified, past tense, as if it's already happened, because the promise is so certain. So how do I know this? Well, there is a verse even in the book of Hebrews that gives us this sense of assurance. Have a look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. This is what it says. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence Firm to the end. We have come to share in Christ. That is, we are in Christ. All of the language that Paul uses of our union with Christ is embedded in that. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firm our original confidence to the end. Persevering till the end is the evidence of our faith. And God will use these warning passages as a means of achieving that. Think about all of the warning labels that we receive on packaging these days, right? We pay various levels of attention to warning packages. Seems to me that most people don't pay too much attention to the warning label on a packet of cigarettes, right? Smoke this, you will get lung cancer, you'll get mouth cancer, your teeth will look all manky like this, right? Oh, well, you know, and uh, smoke away. Or, or the, um, you know, the suggested speed limits around a corner, it's like when I was a pea plate, I was like, the, the challenge was to try and double those things. You know, it's like, that's just a suggestion. I'm not going to heed that too. But there are actually other warnings that we do pay a lot of attention to. Why? Because of the significance of the consequence. If there is a bottle of poison and there's a warning on it that says, do not drink. If you drink, you will die. Like literally, if this product is consumed, call triple zero, call the poison hotline. It's an emergency because you will die. Now, when I see that warning label on the bottle, I don't ask the question, hmm, I wonder if anyone has ever drunk this and lived. No, I read the warning label and I think, okay, I'm not going to drink the poison. And it achieves the purpose for what it was intended. That is, it prevents me from drinking the poison and me having a funeral the next week, right? It achieves the purpose. And the warning passages that we read of in Hebrews are God's means of stirring us to cling to Jesus and not let go. So what is the warning here? What's the warning, the the, the first of five warnings that we will receive in this book? Well, the warning is about paying attention, about listening. 
See what he says there in verse 1? We must pay much closer attention. We've received a message from a superior messenger, Jesus. The message itself is infinitely better. We therefore must pay much more careful attention to what we have heard. And he gives us three reasons why we need to listen to the message of Jesus. You see them there from verse 3 on? This message was declared at first by the Lord. Like Jesus himself, the Son of God, God's best message to this world. He is the one who delivers this message. You cannot get a more important deliverer of a message than the Father's Son. Jesus declared the gospel. Secondly, it was confirmed by eyewitnesses. That is the apostles who saw Jesus, who touched him, who experienced the miracles, who laid hands on those who were healed and risen from the dead, who heard of all of Jesus' teachings. They confirmed it with what is written in our Bible. And finally, God verified his message as he poured out his spirit with signs and wonders and miracles and various gifts of the Spirit. If you read the book of Acts, you can barely get through a chapter without some form of sign or wonder or miracle or something crazy happening. God put his stamp of approval on this message. That's why we should listen to Jesus. We need to pay attention. Why? Lest we drift away from it. Lest we drift away. Now that word drift there is... It's a boating metaphor. It's a nautical metaphor. It's what happens when a boat is untethered from its mooring or its anchor and just so happens to drift away. You'll notice again in verse 3 there, he says, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Neglect, it's not willful. It's not active denial. It's passive. It's drifting. And this, this warning here is a warning against passive, indifferent, apathetic, cruise control Christianity. He says, pay attention. Because drifting is a dangerous place to be. We have to listen to Jesus. The antidote, we're told, is to pay attention we therefore must pay close attention to what we've heard you know you can tell the difference between a first-time flyer and a frequent flyer by the way that they listen to the safety announcement you know when the air hostess or host gets up and says um you know all of the things about life jackets and and the first-time flyer has literally read the safety book card from cover to cover and checked out and when they say and under your seat you will see a life vest and they they check and when they say, and either behind or in front of you, there is an emergency exit, check to know which one is closest. And they turn around and look and check. They're listening, right? But then they have this moment of realizing that everyone else on the plane has got earphones in or is reading or they're asleep or they're watching a movie or something else is happening. They're not paying attention. It's the difference between attentiveness and complete inattentiveness. And it seems to me that the same attitude is at play in so many of our lives that we think, you know what? I've heard this before. I don't need to listen. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross, rose again, right, right. I've heard it. 
What I really need is something else. And the preacher will say, no, don't pay closer attention to what we've seen and heard. The temptation for the first readers of Hebrews was to go back to the Torah, to the law, to the message mediated by angels. Our temptation is not so much to go back to the law. That's probably not our story of conversion, although perhaps for some of you, religiosity may have been your story. Our temptation is to go back to the message of our culture, to the message of our world that is so contrary to the message that Jesus delivered. And I don't know if you realize this, but we, we sit as immersed and soaked in our culture as the original readers were in theirs. They were immersed in this Hebrew worldview, every single day reminded of the Torah, the tassels that hung off their belts, the scriptures across the top of their, of their doorposts, reminders of their embodied faith, of the place of the law, every decision that they made. And we too are swimming and immersed in our culture and all of the forces that shape us Every decision we make, the way we speak, the way that we think, we are being formed. Our temptation is to default back to secular worldview that says there is no God. What you see is what you see. That in fact, the highest value in this world is the expression of your personal autonomy. That you are the center of the universe. And you pursue what makes you happy. Follow your heart. That's, that's the, when you drift away from Jesus, that's what we drift to. What chaos that worldview causes. If every single person in this room truly is the center of the universe, we're in trouble. Don't drift. In fact, Jesus is the one who comes, lays down his life, takes it up again, promises to return and bring all of those home with him. He is the one who lived the perfect human existence. If we want to know how to live, Jesus is the one who lived the way that God intended us to live in perfect worship of the Father, intimacy with God. Our temptation is to default back to the secular culture that we swim in. And the author of the sermon of the Hebrews will say, don't drift back. Listen to Jesus. Pay more closer attention. Like this week, download you version. Get the, get the reading plan. Read it. Soak yourself. Immerse yourself in the message of Jesus. Like don't skip out on community. Be here, like be formed by what happens in this room on a Sunday. The worship that occurs here is central to our embodied ritual practice habit of worshiping Jesus, not just with our minds, but with our bodies and our lips and our affections for God. Pay closer attention. Don't drift. Why? Because we have such a freaking good 
salvation. It is great. I mean, that's my translation of what he said there in, in verse 4. We have such a great salvation. We've got a great salvation, church. A salvation that takes people who are drowning in the weight of their guilt and shame and sets people free. We have a great salvation that takes people who are spiritually blind and gives them sight, people who are spiritually lame and helps them walk. We have a great salvation that helps people have a deep sense of purpose and significance and worth when there was none. We have such a good salvation in Jesus. Don't drift. One of the biggest dangers of our day is spiritual lethargy, cruise control Christianity, apathy, whatever you want to call it. That's why our deepest heart for you this year is that you would experience more of God. And when we say more of God, we don't just mean more from God, like more, more of His blessings of forgiveness and purpose and meaning. We mean deep, intimate relationship with God, that you would experience Him and encounter Him. It's our hope. And spiritual amnesia and spiritual anorexia is ravaging our churches because we have stopped paying attention and listening to the message that Jesus brought. You know that hymn that we sing sometimes at Anchor, but it's a very famous hymn, Come Thou Fount? It has a line in it that somehow, I don't know, I don't know how this happened, but somehow the church has made that bit of a badge of honor prone to wonder. That's not a good thing. Like, I don't know why we put that up on our social media. as oh, I'm prone to wonder. Like, that line, that's a travesty. That our hearts are prone to drift away from Jesus. But it's also a reality. And you know, the author of that, um, that hymn was a guy called Robert Robinson. He was saved powerfully under the preaching of George Whitfield back in the day. He was a pastor of the church, used powerfully by God to bless God's people. And yet he got to a point in his life where he stopped paying attention and he began to drift. Dropped out of ministry, walked away from Jesus, decided that he needed to find some sense of inner peace because it was lacking in his life. Surprise, surprise. So he traveled. And there's nothing. This is the 15th century, guys. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Well, that's what we do. I'll go find myself. I'll go travel. So he travels, and on his travels, he bumps into a young girl who's reading a hymn book, and she says to him, what do you make of this hymn? She hands him the book, and he reads the very words to the, own, to the hymn that he had penned, Come Thou Fount. And he realizes in that moment that despite his running, God had been pursuing him. And he tried to avoid it, but he couldn't. He confessed to her that he was the author of the hymn, that in fact he was running from God, and she replied to him, you know what? Those streams of mercy, they're still flowing for you. And God used that to draw him back, to stop drifting. Church, our encouragement is not to drift. I, I get it. I get that there is pressure. I get that it is appealing to give in to the options that our culture and our world offers us. But when we do the actual math, the equation of walking away from Jesus makes zero sense. The equation of sticking with Jesus makes all of the sense in the world because we have a great salvation in Him. Amen?
We're going to close our time together by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Around the room, there are four stations with bread and grape juice. The bread represents Jesus' body, which was broken for you. His blood represented by the grape juice, which was poured out and shed for your forgiveness. And we invite those of you who love Jesus, who worship Him, to experience the embodied reminder of the good, great salvation that we have as we come forward and take the Lord's Supper together. Let me read this from the back end of Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In Christ you are free. Free from the fear of death, free from the power of the enemy. And this meal is your reminder. So we invite you, church, to come forward, participate in the Lord's table as we worship together. Can we stand? We stand together. Let me pray. Father God, you are so good to us. The salvation that we have received is incredible. God, that you would take us, wretched, broken people, that you would give your one and only son, that you would secure for us eternal life. Father, forgive our drifting hearts. Help us not to drift, but to pay attention, to listen, to lean in. Strengthen our faith, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.